like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, the greatest deterrent to sin in the life of a Christian is not to pound him over the head with legalism. It's not to give him a whole long list of do's and don'ts. It's not to emphasize the negative. The greatest deterrent to sin in the life of a Christian is to keep before that person Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for sin. When Jesus Christ is magnified, when Jesus Christ is made central, when Jesus Christ is given the preeminent place, sin is deterred, it is reduced, it is minimized. David Brainerd, missionary to the American Indians, wrote this in his journal. I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. And I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. And then in another place he said this, I find that my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in the small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. A focus on who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his gracious sacrifice inevitably leads to holiness. That's why we have communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a constant reminder to us of his sacrifice in our place. And that's why when Paul came to Corinth, he had one purpose in mind, one goal in mind, and he tells us what that is in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And while Paul was there, it seems like the church did pretty well. But now Paul has left Corinth and time has gone by and the focus of the Corinthians has gone off of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and onto human teachers. Their focus has gone onto themselves because he says you are puffed up with pride and as a result of that, sin has entered the church. Immorality has entered the church. And once it's there... It has to be dealt with. It has to be confronted. And that's the issue Paul deals with in this fifth chapter. He tells them how to deal with immorality. Now this chapter is very contemporary. Because we live in a society with moral values no different than those in the city of Corinth. We live in a sexually mad society. What God has created for the happiness and enjoyment and pro procreation of man, man has perverted and he has twisted and he has distorted. I think it's readily apparent today that we have an overemphasis on the body, the, the physical. We see the presentation of it constantly on the TV screen. We see the exploitation of the body constantly before us. 
fact, it's to the point where I think in our society, we are actually worshiping the flesh. There is a preoccupation with fashion, with physique, with figures, with exposure, with pornographic material, until we have got the emphasis on the body totally out of line with where God intended it to be. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, used this analogy. He said, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where they fill an auditorium a different way. Rather than having a girl undress, they fill an auditorium, they pack it to the walls, and a guy walks in with a big tray. And the tray is covered with a cloth. And while music begins to play and the lights begin to flash, and all of a sudden, through all of this, in a rather enticing manner, he begins to pull the veil away from the tray. And the tray is exposed. And on the tray is a pork chop. Wouldn't you think, says Lewis, that in that country, something had gone wrong with their appetite for food. See, there's nothing wrong with the body. And there's nothing wrong with sexual relations within the context that God has intended. But we have so distorted that and twisted that that our society is showing signs of severe sickness in this area. In relation to the body, our world tends to worship it. You know, you can go to the other extreme. You can denounce the body. You can view the body as a horrible, evil, rotten, vile thing, and that's wrong as well. Like asceticism. The ascetics used to view the body as a tomb and practice bodily mortification. Some of the Gnostics called marriage a vile, polluted way of life because it involves sexual relations. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, went so far as to say any bodily contact at all is evil. And some of the monks in the early centuries regarded it as a sin to bathe because then they would see themselves naked. Athanasius boasted of a man named Anthony who was such a praiseworthy man because he never changed his clothes or washed his feet. I kind of doubt that many people stayed around to attest to his praiseworthiness. Antinius proudly related that Simon Stiletes was so holy that when he walked, vermin dropped off his body. See, either of those two extremes is a distortion of God's design for the body. Either the denunciation of it or the exaltation of it. There is nothing evil about the body itself. What is evil is our misuse and abuse of the body. The body isn't evil, otherwise God wouldn't want it, and God does want it. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your what? Your bodies as a living and holy 
sacrifice acceptable to God. And there's nothing wrong with the physical act of sexual intercourse within the marriage relationship. God thought it up. He established it. Hebrews 13.4 says marriage is honorable in all and the marriage bed is undefiled. But outside of the marriage bond, sexual relationship is immorality. In the next chapter, chapter 6 and verse 13, God makes that very clear. He says the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And yet in the church at Corinth, there was immorality. And Paul writes this fifth chapter to tell the church how they ought to deal with it. And we began to look at this last week, and we're going to look at it again this morning in terms of five points. The first point is the report in verse 1. And we saw that the report was public. He says it's reported. It's common knowledge. People are talking about the immorality in the church at Corinth. And so it's public. Secondly, it's perverted. A son is living with his father's wife in an incestuous relationship. It's a perverted sin. So it's public, it's perverted, and it's persistent because the, verse, the verb is continuous. It's not a one-time incident. It's an ongoing situation. So that's the report. Secondly, we see the reaction in verse 2. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. Talk about the wrong reaction. They had it. They became arrogant, proud, conceited. They were proud about the fact that they were so open-minded that they would allow these people to come in. And Paul says, you ought to have mourned. The proper reaction of a local church when immorality is found in its midst is sorrow. Sorrow for that person Sorrow for the testimony of Christ that is marred by that activity. Sorrow that I myself wasn't an encouragement to that individual ahead of time to maybe keep them from doing this. There's no place for pride. The right reaction is mourning, weeping, sorrow, sadness. And then thirdly, the response in verses 2 to 5. And Paul says, put him out of the church. In verse 5, he says, deliver him over to Satan. And the procedure for that is given by, given by our Lord in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. When a person sins, you're to go to them privately in verse 15. If they listen to you, you've won your brother. If they do not listen, you go to them plurally in verse 16 with two or three witnesses. If they listen to you, you've won your brother. If they don't listen, you go to them publicly in verse 17. You tell it to the church. And if they still don't listen, then he says you put them out. And that's the step that's taking place, this fourth step in the church at Corinth here in chapter 5. You say, well, what happens to him? He tells us in verse 5, his flesh is destroyed, but his spirit is saved. You say, well, Dan, that sounds like some pretty strong action. I had somebody tell me this week, I know that's what the Bible says, but I don't know if I could ever really do that. Well, let me remind you that this person is in a continuous situation, a continuing situation of sin, 
And this putting the person out, according to Matthew 18, only happens after the person has refused to listen. Refused to listen to one, refused to listen to three, refused to listen to the whole church. And then when they do not repent at that point, this is the action we have to take as the Lord prescribes. Now let me tell you this. This is not about the sin. This is about the rebellion. Okay, this person, it's not that this person commits a sin. If a person commits a sin and they repent, it's over with. This person commits a sin and continues to commit the sin and they're in an act of rebellion against that sin and they need somebody to get in their face and say, brother, you're a train wreck about to happen. This is the most loving thing you can do for a person who gets in a rebellious situation and is ongoing in sin and refusing to repent and ignoring the Lord and ignoring what his brothers and sisters are telling him. The most loving thing you can do for that person. In fact, some of you sitting in this room today have been put out of this church and you're back. You have repented and you're back. Some of you sitting here today have gone through various stages of this process where you've been confronted by a brother or sister and you've repented and you're back. I have, th- I have had to go on numerous occasions privately and plurally to brothers and sisters who were in this situation and it is the most difficult thing that I ever have to do. It is a gut check when you're going to go talk to somebody about the sin in their life. Because I tell you what, you spend a lot of time checking to make sure you don't have a log in your own eye when you go. And I have never yet talked to someone in that situation without breaking down and crying because of the sorrow that it brings to my heart. But it's the right thing to do. And that's the key. God is saying, this is the action that you take as the step. You say, well, why is it necessary? Well, Paul anticipated that you would ask that. And so his fourth point is the reason in verses 6 to 8. Notice what he says in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Now, I guess if I had to pick the most corrupt church in the New Testament, if I had to pick the church with the most problems in the New Testament, it would be a tie between the church at Corinth and the church at Laodicea. You remember the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3? They're the church that Jesus says, you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm, and because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So I would kind of put those two churches together and say they're probably the churches with the most problems in the New Testament. You know what they also had in common? Not only were they the two worst churches in the New Testament, they both thought they were the best churches in the New Testament. Remember what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea? In Revelation 3.17, he says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, 
and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They thought they had need of nothing. They thought they were the best church in the New Testament, but they were the worst. And what does he say to the church of Corinth in verse 6? You are boasting. They were bragging, they were proud, they were puffed up, and they had immorality in their midst. Now that tells me that sometimes our evaluation of ourselves spiritually is wrong. Sometimes when we evaluate ourselves, we magnify the pluses and ignore the minuses. Here's two churches saying, we're great. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. They weren't taking an honest appraisal of themselves, and I think that often happens in our spiritual inventory. So Paul says, you're bragging, but there's no reason to be bragging. Look at the rest of verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? If, If Paul were writing today, he would say, one rotten apple spoils the barrel. The idea is that a little evil spreads and spoils the whole church. Now, what is leaven? Well, when a lady was making bread, she would take the dough and she would work the dough, and then she would take a little piece of the dough and roll it it up in a ball, put it in some water, and let it stay there for several days and sour. That was leaven. Then she'd go ahead and make the bread, and then the next time she wanted to make bread, she would get her dough together and she would get that leaven and she would put it into the new dough, and it would spread throughout the new dough. And what does leaven do? It makes bread kind of get puffed up, which is interesting because that was the case with the church at Corinth. But she would take that and put it in the new dough, and it would spread and ferment the new dough, and then she'd take another piece and put it aside for the next loaf of bread. So the idea of leaven is something from the old that is brought into the new and contaminates the new. So you did a lot of things in your old life before you were a Christian, and I think what Paul is telling us individually here is don't bring any leftover from your old life that becomes a starter for sin in your new life. And of course, leaven in Scripture is always a sign of sin, and so he's really speaking to the church as a whole mainly here because he's saying when a church ignores sin, it doesn't go away, it spreads. And then look at verse 7. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. Now he's saying you as a church and you as an individual are unleavened bread. You are not sourdough bread. You are unleavened and he says you are a new loaf, not an old loaf. And because you're unleavened and because you're new, he says you're to get rid of the leaven. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. All things are become new. 
As an individual, you're putting out the leaven, the sin in your life, because you're unleavened dough. And as a church, we're to be recognizing that sin and putting that out of our midst because we are unleavened bread. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Now, why does he bring this up here? Well, you remember when Israel was in Egypt, they celebrated the Passover that first time. Each family took a lamb and they sacrificed the lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their house. And when the death angel saw the blood, he passed over. And so that sacrificial lamb really separated them from the judgment of God. It also separated them from Egypt and the sin in Egypt. But you know what Israel did for the next seven days after they celebrated the Passover? each year, they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast where they got rid of all the leaven in their house. They would literally sweep the house out to make sure they got rid of all the leaven, and for those seven days, they only ate unleavened bread. It didn't rise, it was just flat. And that was a symbol of after the Passover, you get rid of the leaven. You sweep out the sin in your life. And so here he says, Christ is our Passover lamb. His sacrifice has separated us from sin. And when you take something from your old life and you're going to bring it into your new life, guess what? You have to drag it past the cross of Jesus. Because Jesus has died as our Passover lamb, and we need to be celebrating that feast by getting rid of the leaven in our life. Look at verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, let's celebrate the feast. Now, he's not talking literally about the literal Uh, feast of unleavened bread that the Jews practiced, he's obviously talking figuratively. He's saying you need to get rid of the old leaven in your life. And he mentions some of it, the leaven of malice and wickedness. You need to sweep out your house and then keep the unleavened bread, the new bread of sincerity and truth. And so just as Israel did this with leaven after the Passover, We are to do it with sin after our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So what's the reason for discipline? It's to purify the church. And as we said last last week, it's also for the sake of that individual to draw them back to the Lord. And then he gives one more point on the subject of discipline. And that's the realm in verses 9 to 13. Who are we responsible to discipline? Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, what letter? I don't know what letter. He he wrote them a letter prior to 1 Corinthians, so 1 Corinthians was really not the first 
letter he had written to this church. You say, well, what was the church, what was the letter about? Well, he wrote to them saying, don't fellowship with immoral people. Now he wants to clarify that. And he does in verse 10. Notice what he says. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Now get this. Paul says, I said, don't associate with immoral people. I didn't mean the people of the world. And here he names some other kinds of people, and and really what he says here kind of sums up all of man's philosophy. He says the immoral person, that's hedonism. The covetous person and the swindler, which is really an extortioner, that's materialism. And then the idolaters, that's false religion. So he says, the immoral, that's sin against yourself. The covetous and swindlers, that's sin against your neighbor. The idolater, that's sin against God. And so he kind of sums it all up in this one verse. But Paul says, I don't mean to stay away from the world. If, if you did that, you'd have to go to another planet. What is he saying? Well, before I say that, let me, let me just add a, a footnote here. What is our relationship to the world? How are we to associate with the world? Well, here's the formula. It's not no contact. It's no conformity. Jesus gave us that example. He ate and drank with sinners and publicans. In his prayer for us in John 17, 15, he said, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil. I love Philippians 2, 15. Listen to it. It says that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So you're in the world, but you're light in the midst of that difficult, dark place. So Paul says, when I said not to associate with certain people, I didn't mean the world. I'm not talking about your unbelieving friends. Who's he talking about? Well, look at verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, I want you to notice something here. He doesn't say, don't associate with someone who struggles with immorality. He says, don't associate with an immoral person. He doesn't say, don't associate with someone who struggles with idolatry. He says, don't associate with an idolater. You see, when the Bible takes a sin and names a person by that sin. He's an idolater. He's a swindler. What he's saying is their very character, their personification is that sin. So he's not talking about a person who struggles with this. He's talking about a person who is characterized by this very sin. And notice he calls them a so-called brother because only the Lord really knows. And he reminds us in this passage that it's not only the big perverted sin that we deal with, because here he names some sins that are a little closer to home. 
And it's interesting to me that he names these sins, and I actually notice that all of these sins show up in the book of 1 Corinthians. Talks about immorality right here in chapter 5. Talks about the covetous person. In chapter 10 and verse 24, he says, stop seeking your own good. Talks about an idolater who's worshiping other gods. In chapter 10 and verse 20 and 21, he talks about some in the church at Corinth who were still going to the pagan temples and worshiping the idols. Talks about a reviler, that's a slanderer, someone who speaks against another. And he says in chapter 16 and verse 11, when Timothy comes, don't despise him. Talks about a drunkard. When he gets to chapter 11 and verse 21, he says that some were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And he talks about a swindler. That's someone who's trying to get money from somebody else. And in the next chapter, chapter 6, he's going to talk about some believers who are taking their brothers to court to try to get their money. And so it seems to me that they had a lot of disciplining to do. But Paul wants it to be clear to them and to us that the realm for that discipline is the church. Look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? What what business is is it of me to be judging the world? None. That's not my job. Do you not judge those who are within the church? He says, it's not my job to judge those who are outside. It is our job to judge those who are in the church. And then verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. God will take care of that. Therefore, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The realm for our discipline is the church. Everything else God takes care of, but we have a responsibility to carry out discipline within the body of Christ. I'm going to close by going back to what I said at the beginning. The best deterrent to sin is to keep a proper focus on Christ and him crucified. And that is our attempt here at the chapel, to proclaim Christ, to exalt Christ, to magnify Christ. But if sin comes in, we will deal with it just as Paul prescribes here. We will realize that our realm is the church, not the world. We will have the right reaction, sorrow. We will have the right response, that if it comes to that fourth step, we will put someone out. Because we realize the reason. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. You want to help prevent this from happening here? Then focus on Christ, our Passover lamb, and start celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread so that each of us throughout the week are sweeping out our own house of the sin so that we never have to do that collectively as a church. That's my prayer for you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage, a tough passage, challenging passage. And yet it's your truth. 
And Father, I pray that we would be sensitive to what you say and obedient to what you say and to be able to carry out your directives for us in a loving manner. Father, we thank you that in all stages of this process, you are our forgiving God. We thank you that Jesus is our Passover lamb and that no sin is too great, no rebellion is too great to experience your forgiveness when we listen and repent and return. And Father, I pray that you would do that work in each of our hearts today and that we truly might be celebrating our Passover lamb by cleaning out the leaven in our lives, the little things from our old life that need to be swept out. Help us do that by your spirit, and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.